Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Dan Q. Makalua. The Man Team. Mega Bears Fan. A composite show, archive segments from previous episodes that got cut due to time. Episode 307, Dan Q, Makalua, the me and team, Mega Bears fan, and Mike W. Proposals for new victory conditions. <laughs> hey, it's our old friend Supremacy King. New victory conditions is one of my favorite topics, so hooray. This proposal does remind me uh, a little bit of the um, victory conditions for the new Civ New Dawn board game, which we talked about a few episodes ago. Mm. Where you've got a set of objective cards, and in the board game, you have to complete one objective from each card. This proposal is there would just be a set of X many objectives, and you just have to complete a certain number of them. Now, I suppose they could probably scale the number based on like difficulty. Maybe on higher difficulties, you have to complete more objectives or something like that, which could be an interesting way of forcing players to diversify. So his proposals are, you know, nine different possible objectives. One is control at least 75% of all land tiles, which is, you know, kind of similar to Civ IV's, I think, domination victory? Yep. It was a percentage of the tiles and the percentage of the population. So in that way, that was one of two things, just like he's proposing any two things, any two conditions. Number two is research the future tech five times. I think that's what that's supposed to mean. Number three is research the future civic five times. Number four is achieve, he puts a thousand, but I assume just some threshold of very high tourism. Number five is have your religion be the majority religion in 75% of cities. So as opposed to 100% of them, which I guess would trigger the, uh, well, I guess he's saying these would completely replace the existing victory conditions. So correct total population. Number seven is build 20 wonders. 20 seems like it might be a lot, especially considering how restrictive the placement of some wonders is in Civ six. So that number might need to be tweaked, but uh, I think you can say that about any of these. Yeah. Recruit at least 20 great people ally with at least 75% of civs in the game. Well, that one just mechanically doesn't work right now because the way the alliance mechanic is, you can only have five alliances total. So if you're playing a game with more than however many civs, that's like literally impossible to do without changing the way alliances work. Or but in killing some civs. <laughs> oh yeah, I guess it put a little addendum to that ally with at least 75% of remaining civs. Uh-huh. Uh, well. Probably there should be a city-state thing in here too. Like maybe a 10th one would be be suzerain of X number of city-states. But yeah, I, I like the idea of having victory objectives that try to reach as opposed to these very rigid categorical victories, because I think the poster here proposes two of them. Like, I think, you know, that could be something that scales by difficulty setting where, you know, if you're playing on deity, maybe you've got to complete six or seven or eight of them. That's forcing you to not just rely on building military units and conquering everybody, but actually diversifying your civilization and using all the mechanics in the game. 
That's not how uh, it would go, though. Because like probably not. But hypothetically, one of my sticking points with the game is that it doesn't end when it's over, and so like if these could be tuned to the point where you can end a game when it's over. If you brought it down to two thirds of all the land tiles and population, for example, that might be reasonable or something right. in that territory. But yeah, if you require like eight of these, what people are in D&D are going to do is they're going to conquer almost all the map and then it'll just be their leisure when they finish the rest of it. So let's make one game take longer, ultimately. Yeah, because what we don't need right now with it is making things take the game ending longer. Well, but the difference with this is these victory conditions or objectives are things that you would still be working towards achieving. So it's not like you've already met all the victory conditions and you're just hitting end turn, right, until you actually get the victory screen. There's no doubt. Like, once you're militarily dominant, there's no doubt any longer. Unless somebody else is about to win. But assuming that you're past the point where somebody else is about to win, it doesn't matter. You just keep conquering people and you're going to get this stuff eventually because there's no chance anybody else is. Right. And and I would assume that just conquering everybody else is just always a de facto victory condition. Like uh, the poster here, I don't even think put any capturing X number of cities or X number of capitals as an objective. So that. You would have the total of hop and land tiles if you did this. So that well, they, true. Well, that's the thing. That would be incidental. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, probably. But you know, there's still nothing that you can do really that would stop a player from being able to win the game by just conquering every other player. Well, like, and that's what I'm saying though. Like, they don't put out like a seven point victory requirement on deity because that's like ultimately that's just what you're going to be forcing. Yeah, perhaps. You know, some of the word choice is interesting, and I think about whatever victory condition we put into place, there's always domination. Just take over everybody, and then yours culture is the only culture. You know, <laughs> your science output is on the only science output, so of course you're going to be able to win the space race. Your tourism is the highest tourism. Yeah. yeah it's not like anyone else is going to be building 20 wonders when they don't have any cities. Right. Nope. But if it's based on tourism output rather than just relative tourism with the other players, then that would be something where you would still have to work to achieve it. I mean, if there's no other players in the game, then obviously there's no resistance to to stop you from just building however the heck many theater districts you need to get that threshold. So it's still the same problem for Phil, which is that the victory is a foregone conclusion. But that would change it from just, oh, kill the dominant tourism generator. By default, you are generating the most tourism. I would like to point out here that some of these would be threatening to the point where Defender would have initiative, even more so than now, because you kind of have that with tourism in space, but those require a lot of investment. If you tune down the investment, there's going to be some point where it's not completely impossible to conquer somebody trying for it, but it's also not completely impossible to outproduce and overwhelm somebody who is trying to build 20 wonders, for example, or maybe it's 10, whatever the breakpoint is. And so you would have more of a trade off. You know, are you going to be the one who tries to race for a victory condition or are you going to try to intercept other victory conditions? Some of the language, I mean, first off, Supremacy King noted that he's got some numbers have question marks around them because to be tweaked to make sure the choices are adequately difficult, quote unquote, and in addition to being possible, other than the, the warmonger aspect that, that's inherent in it, I could see it scaling on uh, game speed and also map size as well in terms of the numbers. But some of the language choice is interesting because when I read build at least 20 wonders, if that was literally build at least 20 wonders, it couldn't be well. I just captured all of these cities, and they have there's 20 wonders, therefore I win. <laughs> yeah. Actually, n- no, you didn't build them. You captured them. Or if your tourism output was, hey, look at this, I just captured all of these cities, my tourism output is now 1,000, therefore I win. 
you could say, no, it actually needs to be X number of thousands of tourism that you have already generated over X number of turns, which you might say, well, wouldn't that be possible for the warmonger to do anyway? Because if they're the warmonger and they just hold on to those cities for X numbers of turns, then they will have generated that output. But I'm thinking the idea or the hope would be that if you said it was based on total tourism output, so if you needed, say, 10,000, for example, then you've got 1,000 tourism per turn in your civilization, then once you've got to 10, or however many turns it takes you to get to 10,000 that you win, and that could happen before, possibly before the warmonger comes and takes your cities to then be able to have that tourism output over X number of turns. You mean like the game in the background is keeping a cumulative score of all the tourism output you've ever had? Yes, exactly. Okay. Just to give an incentive for, well, why don't I just go and be a warmonger, or now I've got to worry about the warmonger taking my stuff, ties into other parts in the game too, like in terms of no diplomacy, we've talked about shared victory conditions as well, that you could get get into lots of other interesting things here. But I just wouldn't want it to be, well, you go ahead, you build all these nice little things, you even research all of these nice little things, you get yourself to five future techs or five future civics or whatever. I'm just going to sit here building these units more or less matched to your era, and then I'm just going to go ahead and I'm going to take your stuff. And then look at that. My science output is now good enough in order to research that, that the game would be tracking not just what you've got on that particular turn, because then I also thought about what if you hold on to it for X number of turns? Yeah, well, if you're the warmonger, you're in the best position to be able to hold on to it for X number of turns because you've got the greatest military. And you're probably going to be able to hold on to it that long, even if everybody else in the game finally went, well, screw you, we're going to try to take that back. Well, assuming loyalty doesn't take it from you. Yeah. <laughs> There's that too. One thing in here that, that I do want to point out that uh, is kind of a downside is I kind of struggle to see how any sort of cooperative victories would fit into this paradigm. I mean, unless you just have a mechanic where you allow ties, where, oh, if more than one sieve reaches the threshold of victory objectives in the same turn, then they all win. Hooray. But that's still not really like... <laughs> that's going to be rare. Yeah, that's more of an incidental thing. That's not really a like, we're working together to achieve a cooperative victory, which is something that I would really like to see in the game because, you know, I personally believe that that's something like that is the only way that diplomacy is ever really going to feel like it actually works the way it's intended to work is if you can actually build alliances and coalitions with the intent of winning the game in those alliances. Well, I still think what's been suggested in the thread by Supremacy King could do that. I'll use the, let's say the objective is not to achieve a thousand tourism per turn, but overall 10,000 tourism. Okay, so there's this person over here that, yeah, they're the warmonger. They're going to try to take out everybody. Hey, you're generating 500 tourism a turn. I'm generating 500 tourism a turn. It probably wouldn't be the numbers that high. You know, if we can together, if we can hold out on having a sufficient number of our cities taken, then we can win the game together because we will pool our tourism together and we will prevent that warmonger from being able to take it over because that person's trying to win for themselves, right? And so we can win together more quickly if we combine and we ally. And you might say, well, it shouldn't just be that one ally that you're 500 and you're 500 is now 1,000. Maybe it doesn't generate that absolute value enough that if you want it to be a shared condition, maybe it's only good enough for two-thirds or three-quarters of the output or whatever. But I think with the way that this is set up, you just tweak it a little bit. You can have it be so that you can have not only victories other than warmongering or congratulations, you want a cultural victory by warmongering because you've got greater cultural output and tourism output than anybody, then you can have those shared victories and those shares of victories are not warmongering. And in fact, you've been able to successfully counter the warmonger by allying with the right people at the right time. 
Well, but this proposal still requires that you achieve multiple conditions in order to win. So even if you are sharing in one of them, does that necessarily mean that you're going to be sharing in the other one? So, you know, Dan, if you and I are playing and we've got the shared culture or whatever, and then I build my 20th wonder, do I win and you don't? I would say in in a situation like that, yeah, where the alliance isn't based, for example, on the tourism, like we've got a specific type of tourism. That's an important question. And I think either go two ways. You can either say that, you know, in order to get that second condition, you've got 17 wonders, I've got 12. So if you build three more, then your contribution to our winning is not only building the three more wonders, but also contributing to your tourism output along with my tourism output. And then that way, I would know that hmm, that other person is actually going to be doing a little bit more in order to win this shared victory condition. And you also recognize that I'm actually going to end up be contributing a little bit more to this shared victory condition. So maybe I don't want to win with you. Maybe I want to win with somebody else. Or maybe I want to try to go with, uh, go it on my own by getting these own two victory conditions, which is, Dan, I really don't need your tourism. I don't have to worry about this warmonger taking me out in 20 turns. It's going to take him 30. So I'm just going to take a few extra turns and then to win the game on my own because I'm going to finish these wonders in a few extra turns and therefore I get the victory and you don't. I think that could still work within the diplomacy aspect. So let me see if I'm understanding correctly. Are you saying that that each of these objectives would have kind of like alliance mechanic tied to them where you and I would be able to declare that we are pursuing this victory condition together and then our resources are pooled? Or is it just an incidental thing where we both happened to achieve the condition and now we're working together? I'm a little confused. I think it should be that it's declared, but part of that declaration is also that each ally knows where everyone stands in terms of their respective outputs. So that if you, for example, are fine that, well, okay, we need two victory conditions to win and I can win by myself or you can win with me, that, you know what, I'm going to achieve that. 20th wonder, building that 20th wonder because I'm at 17 very quickly. But if I get you to join me, then with your tourism output and my wonder production, we're going to be able to win that much more quickly. And even though it's a shared victory condition, we still win. And your incentive to do that might be this warmonger is going to take me out or is going to take out sufficient number of my cities that, in fact, I'm going to need your tourism output to make up for the tourism output that I've lost, but I can still finish with these few wonders to go, and then we both win together. Yeah, I guess maybe that could be a way of handling it. I don't know how well that would work in practice, but principle, it sounds like an interesting idea. Just conquer all the cities, and then you win. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or wait, new meta, we're going to do permanent alliances again, and one person goes for one victory condition, and one person goes for the other victory condition, and then they permanently ally and win on the spot when they do so. Yeah, you'd want systems in place to disallow something like that. Um, Well, one way to do it would be actually because right now the way that they've got the alliance system working is you've got the leveling alliances. So, you know, it might be something where you need to reach a level three alliance in a particular category in order for this to even be eligible for a shared victory. And that's actually something that could probably be done in Civ six now. Say, for example, if Phil and I have a military alliance together, level three military alliance and between the two of us, we control every player's capital. Maybe that could be a shared victory. Or, you know, similarly, if Dan and I have a research alliance, we could maybe cooperate on sharing our spaceship parts. And if, you know, Mackie and I have a cultural alliance, then we pool our tourism output or something like that. And it, but it would have to be the level three version of that alliance. 
That could be something yeah, that, that could that wouldn't work. be a surprise. <laughs> right, and that could be something that could work in Civ Six right now without having to change many of the other rules or mechanics or systems. I'm surprised Dan or Mackie didn't have something to say about that. I actually pulled that crap way back in Civ Four. <laughs> With uh, Petrox. Oh, the permanent um, alliance and winning on the spot. Permanent, we we col- permanent ally culture bombed our capital. So, like, we we use our separate pools for generating great artists. Because once you permanently ally, it, it pulls your great people points. So we deliberately avoided this until late. Farmed out a ton of great artists in a short period of time using specialists and pacifism. And then permanently allied and culture bombed up. One of us had a good city already for culture. So we just picked two other cities and culture bombed them from, like... It was like sub 10k to 50k in one turn and just one culture on the spot is really stupid. <laughs> All right. Well, two things. Number one, Mac and I didn't say anything because you tell the story so much better than we do. Second, <laughs> I remember Willow wasn't very impressed, but I, I don't remember if you guys were in the game or not. So <laughs> honestly, I think, I think it was one of those games where oh, it's going to be a slog fest. Number one, to win how we would normally win by taking out all of the AI opponents. And we're going to get that, but it's taking so long. And this is atypical. And you guys thought of it. And fantastic. The game is over. The AI loses one way or the other. That's- yeah, it, 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 <laughs> we were not mad. It was actually hilarious. <laughs> exactly. It was hilarious. Oh, fair enough. Willow wasn't happy. I remember that. Uh, but I guess you guys didn't care. <laughs> I think that was future banned from people doing that again. That should tell you something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, this one time is hilarious and funny. Don't make a habit of it. But I think it would make sense that with the alliance system and the different tiers, that you would have to have an established alliance with some type, say, at level one, and then into level two or level three, however it is that there has to be some measure of time so that it can't just be, say, on this turn, hey, I just realized this in terms of your output of this measure, and you've just realized this output of my measure, or one of us contacted the other to say that, hey, combined, we're going to win. You ally in that turn, boom, congratulations, you've won that there would be both the build-up and then there would also be the timing that the game could prompt you, for example, to say, hey, you know, Dan and Jason have just reached, you know, level two or level three of a cultural alliance and their tourism output, and they're set to win the game in X number of turns so that then the other people in the game would have the chance to say, whoa, wait a minute. Or also even, how come you guys currently have a cultural alliance at uh, tier one? What's going on with that? And then if you think that that's going to end up being a threat, then one way or another, you could try to respond that way, which part of that could be, "Mm, maybe I could convince this person to try to win with me. Hey, maybe they'll give me a scientific alliance, and then I can try to edge my way in there and say that, hey, we're going to win that way. And then that leaves that player that now has a cultural alliance and a scientific alliance with an interesting question of whether or not to win with somebody else. And then that would trigger a point where then the game would say, okay, well, Jason has decided rather than trying to win with Mackie, the the alliance that he signed initially, the alliance that he signed with me, that alliance has now been renewed and we're now going on to tier two. And Mackie's like, hey, what the heck? I thought we were going to win. And then that could spill over into some more interesting diplomatic effects as well. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting potential with the current alliance system and the possibility of joint or cooperative victories. Because one of the big problems, you know, because I've pitched the idea of cooperative victories before. And one of the big problems that I always struggled with was trying to find a way to make it so that every player in the game can't just easily win by just cooperating with everyone. Right. Like you don't want a situation where every game, everybody wins because everybody just cooperates. And the way that the alliance system currently works, where you can only have one of each type of alliance with only one other player 
might solve that problem because if each of those alliances is tied to a certain victory condition and you can only have one of that alliance in play at any given time with one other sieve, then you're basically looking at a situation where only two players can achieve that one victory condition together. And you don't have a situation where all five of us are winning because we all just decided eh, we're not going to fight each other this game. I mean, really, I think what we're getting at is we're addressing two things. One, which is the long-standing, this person's going to win. Um, it's just going to take them 20 or 30 turns to achieve it. Can't the game just recognize that now, number one? But then also, wouldn't it make the game more interesting if there was the possibility for a cooperative win, so a formal win, but then at the same time, give other players the chance to recognize that, you know what, they are ahead. They are set to win. They saw something that we didn't see 15 or 20 turns ago, but now we've got X number of turns to try to disrupt that in some way. It's not, you know, I got to go and take, say, Jason and Mackie out because of their scientific alliance. I'm just going to go ahead and declare on one of them or both of them, go and say, take Mackie's major scientific output city. So then I know that that's going to delay their achieving whatever it is that they need in terms of scientific output or cumulative scientific output throughout the game. And then we can stop that victory from happening. And then maybe Jason will be, you know, a rat bastard and then somehow cancel his alliance with Mackie and then turn around and get maybe an alliance with me. And then everyone else says, Jason, wow, you're a jerk. How come you're not defending Mackie? You're just a fair weather friend. Fine. Everyone turns around and dog piles on Jason. Lots of interesting possibilities here that I think in a way even more interesting than ending the game, even though I think it's more important to be able to end the game. I think the underlying question here, though, is how well is the AI going to understand this, which always, I think, needs to be taken into consideration, too. Unfortunately, trying to be able to not only have the AI recognize that this is a good deal in terms of winning, but also help them to recognize that, hey, no, this is a bad deal and you're going to lose. The buzzing says in the chat, I wonder if the problem might not be that our game end conditions are victory conditions. Maybe there should just be a bonus for ending the game and a score based on the whole of your performance. And I know this is only part of your comment there, Buzzing, but I hear the word score, and we know just how wonderfully Civ has managed to do that at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of feel like your score ends up being, rather than saying achieving a turn where you're at 1,000 tourism, that over the course of the game, you have achieved this output of tourism, and that contributes to your score, because then that's a direct measure of your cumulative output of some measure over the course of the game. Uh, one problem with that proposal also is it kind of introduces the issue of kingmaking, which is basically if one player ends the game in order to just give a premature victory to another player, that's probably not going to be fun for the other players who are trying to compete for the victory. So, you know, if I'm falling way behind and I just do whatever it is that causes the game to end and then Dan wins because he's got a higher score or whatever, you know, Mackie and Mike and Phil are going to be like, uh, whoa, hold on. We were going to try to actually beat Dan. Yeah, and I know some people could say, well, you were planning on trying to beat Dan. Well, you didn't manage to beat Dan before he managed to get this greater score threshold. But <laughs> at the same time, I, I kind of feel like these type of victory conditions where first off, it's not just one victory condition, it's two. So you can't go all one angle, all focusing on culture or science or domination, number one, but then it's based on, say, a total output over the course of the game, or maybe for some of those conditions that, that doesn't make sense, say like the population, for example, so maybe you need to be able to maintain that level of population for X number of turns and then combine that with another reason that is as an effort of your total cumulative output. 
I think that could make for some very interesting gameplay, and also so that at the mid to late game, it's not even necessarily a foregone conclusion that not only is this person not going to win an X number of turns, but it's no foregone conclusion who's going to win in any number of turns right now. That something interesting could happen, and so long as there was sufficient and meaningful player notification that this has been happening in terms of these machinations, you know, it could even be that, you know, depending upon your diplomatic contact and, uh, you know, level of visibility and all that, that you know that, hey, Jason is now doing 100 tourism a turn or has reached some kind of, you know, threshold. Or you know that through, again, through diplomatic contact. And that's information that you could share with other civs that you could act on to try to, to counter. Man, oh, man, this could be really good. Yeah, there's a lot of potential in here. I personally believe that the traditional victory conditions are starting to get a little stale at this point, in part because they are so like railroaded. And I would like to see victory conditions that really do encourage or even require the players to have to diversify their sieves a little bit more. And, you know, this idea could be a way to do that. And yes, and part of that diversity is not only what you're doing, but also how you are relating or not relating to other players on the map. Right. And having objectives like this where you have to achieve multiple conditions also does make it so that, you know, you have those situations where, uh oh, somebody is getting close to a victory. Now we have to make sure that we either stop them or we rush to get other conditions as well. And I don't know if this would improve it, but maybe this could be something where like the first player to achieve one of these conditions gets the victory condition permanently. So if I get 75% of land tiles, I get that permanently. So if Dan were to then come and take a bunch of my cities and I don't have that anymore, maybe I still have credit for having gotten that. I could see you getting maybe, hmm, I could see you getting credit for it. I wouldn't want it to be you were the first one to achieve that, to get, say, 75% of the land tiles, because then if I came around and decimated you and say you're down to 25% of the land tiles, and now I control 75% of the land tiles, oh, nope, sorry, Dan, Jason already achieved that, even though he didn't capitalize on it. Right. I guess it doesn't necessarily have to be exclusive. It could just be that once you achieve that condition, you've achieved it permanently. It makes your early and mid-game achievements as valuable as your late-game achievements. So if I go on a warpath and I build the Roman Empire that conquers pretty much the entire known world, I get credit for that for the remainder of the game, even if somebody does come in and destroy my empire. Of course, if my empire is defeated, I'd have to find a way to achieve one of the other conditions as well. Uh, which would not be easy if I'm completely destroyed. But it's something where it makes it so that reaching for some of these objectives early in the game could be another source of intrigue. Because if you do reach for it early and attain it, you know, you've got credit for that permanently, even if you can't maintain it. I think some of those work better for that. Whereas something like control at least 75% of all land tiles to say that, okay, now even if you don't control 75% of the land tiles in future, let's even just say it's 70%. You control 70%, and now you've successfully reached this population of 400 or whatever the number happens to be. I, I guess my take on it is that you achieve any two of the following conditions, and they're both true at the same time. Which is not to say that, oh, well, I don't control 70, 75% of the land tiles. That's only 70 now. I thought I was going to win with that and reaching a population of 400. But hey, guess what? I can build my 20th wonder right now. There we go. So now I win with the population and the wonders as opposed to the population and the land tiles. And then do you treat some of these differently? Like, if you build 20 wonders and lose them, is that still achieved versus the land tile thing? Well, if the objective was to build them and you were the one who built them and were not countering capturing wonders as being part of that victory, then I guess if you did lose them, you would still have credit for having built them. 
Based on the way it's worded, yeah. So word choice would be very important here. And then is that actually what we want? Right. Is that more desirable as compared to saying you built them and you still hold on to the 20 wonders when you want to say there, I'm using this as one of my two victory conditions. Yeah, build and control at least 20 wonders. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I'm not I saying think you necessarily... should be forced to maintain your victory condition threshold with the uh, domination ones. It's kind of academic. If you're on 70 percent of the, the world's landmass, you're, you're not going to be losing because you've been actively destroying anybody who could have actually stopped you from getting there in the first place. But with some of these others, that could be a relevant consideration. Obviously, not the tech ones, but other than that. Congratulations, you researched five future techs. Hey, you were a dick. We're going to take one of your future techs away. Wait, what? No, that doesn't work like that. Stop that. Well, <laughs> it and, was and stolen. <laughs> Completely stolen. <laughs> it was stolen. They just didn't make a copy. <laughs> they took your original. Another kind of similar idea, which I've pitched before, is you know just introducing victory points, which you could achieve throughout the entire game. And in fact, the era score kind of almost could work that way. Like I could see a version of the game where like, Eris points are effectively victory points, and you could win the game by reaching a certain threshold of era score. And that would be a kind of a similar thing where the things that you do throughout the course of the entire game are directly contributing towards your victory rather than just, oh, I get to the end game and then I pivot towards whichever one victory condition I want to go for. Not necessarily that that's a better idea. It's another option. You also could categorize the victory conditions into major or minor victory conditions. Like, say, you have these two major ones you have to get and also those two minor ones for the victory, which would simplify it. It would enter into questions of what's major versus minor. How do we observe? How do we measure what's major and minor, which would probably be based on either relative output or percentage output, and also taking into account game speed and map size, as, as we had said before. But I think kind of the score aspect, because the buzzing also brings that up in the chat, where he says, okay, now give a score for each of of this huge list of conditions, set a rule as to when the game ends, add up points, done. Or the victory is the first person to reach some threshold of points. So say, you know, just throwing out numbers, the first person to 100 points, the first person to 1,000 points. And, you know, that could also be something that could affect game lengths, where if you are playing like short multiplayer games where, you know, you don't expect the game to go much longer than the medieval era anyway, maybe you set that threshold even lower so the game ends earlier in like the eras as well because you get to those points quicker whereas if you want to make sure that the game actually goes into like the modern and information era and you're researching future texts and stuff like that you could set that threshold even higher so that the game lasts longer by achieving by x turn say as the buzzing suggests to me is okay there's your application of a time victory as opposed to say as you're saying jason here's you know the first person to reach x number of points then turns around and wins the game. My mind's kind of swirling, okay, what kind of notifications are you getting within the game to say that, hey, first person to win 100 points is going to win. You know, this person is at yeah. 90 points, then, you know, you better turn around and do something like that. Well, and you could also have that you, you have to maintain, or you've got maybe then like 20 turns or 30 turns or something like that, where you have to maintain that. So if someone else surpasses you in that time period, then they would win. Oh, Okay. Because you talked about using the error score that we've got now in Civilization VI Rise and Fall, and that's, well, you know, once you've got the plus four or whatever, or plus three from being the first to find a natural wonder, I mean, that's not going to go away. You're going to have that plus three, right. however many turns the game still lasts. Right, but you could have a system where, like, say, the first person to reach, and again, I'm just throwing out numbers, first person to reach a thousand, and assuming we just use the era score as a era points or victory points or whatever we want to call them, basically would trigger the end game, and then there'd be like a countdown of 50 turns or something like that for the other players to then try to meet or exceed 
the number of victory points in order to beat that other player. Hmm. I guess just in my mind, in terms of assigning a score value and then adding up the score, to me, that was in my notion of saying rather than having a thousand tourism a turn, yeah, you're the first person to reach that, for example, that cumulatively you have generated 10,000 tourism over the game. There is one of your two score measures that, okay, rather than, say, having different levels in all nine of these and adding up all of these varying levels to of nine to get to, say, some number, it's, okay, you need to choose any two combinations and you need to get to 10,000 tourism or 5,000 science output over the course of the game, and then that's tied to okay, your performance of the game, therefore you've reached those two measures of score, and therefore you've won the game. Although I have absolutely no problem with the game telling you, hey, this person is on track to doing this in X number of turns, depending upon game speed and era, etc., that you might want a little bit more notification to say, well, now is the time to do something. Now is the time to try to push my scientific output, to try to finish all the universities and all my campuses to get to that level before they do. Or, man, i got to go and take around some of their cities so they don't win before I'm able to achieve my two victory conditions, or holy shoot, I need to try to ally with them and make an argument that we're better off winning together because we can win more quickly, win more easily, whatever, then that could certainly be worthwhile. But I think we've all, we could already have the kind of the adding up the score embedded within what's been suggested between Supremacy King 2 and what we've been talking about thus far. But it is just one possible way to add up numbers. And again, maybe it's just the wording. I, I hear the word score, and I think about score now, and score doesn't have to be that way. Score could be the way that we're talking about with these new potential victory conditions. It could be, congratulations, you won the game. You didn't rage quit after, you know, 50 turns. Oh, good for you. You win. The only one on this list that Supremacy Kings suggests about in terms of a measure is, and it kind of came up uh, earlier in the chat from Drusane about, you know, being Scotland and, hey, win the game on turn 50 because I'm Scotland and all the great people. I'm not certain recruiting X number of great people should be a basis for a victory condition. <laughs> <laughs> your limits to your generation of great people are as variable as your ability to generate great people. Whereas the wonders, because we have the restrictions on, oh, I'm sorry, you can't build that on this type of terrain. There's no suitable location. Okay, because then it's not just a matter of, fine, I'm just going to found a whole bunch of cities that have a fantastic level of production in this city, and they're going to build every wonder under the sun. <laughs> yeah, even on an easy difficulty setting, building that many wonders is not a trivially a easy task. Because, yeah, you would need a lot of cities with a lot of varied terrain. Because I think about just very purposeful things. I mean, yes, especially when it's recruit just 20 like great people in general. Okay, so, you know, like I got f three great generals and five great scientists and four great merchants and, you know, we away we go. I mean, it could be that whatever the output from the great people provides or whatever the benefit that they get from that could help fuel one of the other victory conditions. So therefore it would be incidental, but you know, not all great people are created equally. And uh, even though they would require more or less the same number of great people points as compared to say the wonders, which have the limitation on where you can build them. Plus how many hammers it's going to take you in order to construct it also varies it. The great people just seems to be kind of something that you wouldn't really have to actively think about doing that. You would just be doing that just over the course of playing the game without really thinking about it, for the most part. 
Well, you do have the more affirmative action of the city projects where you're basically trying to spam the great people. Now, with just two victory conditions in this proposal, I think that recruiting 20 great people is one that I don't kind of like. But if it's three or four or something of those, then I think having just recruit 20 great people as just one of those conditions where you still have to achieve two or three others, it becomes a lot more tolerable because you still have to work towards those. It could also have a place in uh, Mike W.'s suggestion if we decided to go with like a major victory condition and a minor victory condition. Yeah, right. And maybe the great people one could match a minor victory condition. And one other thought that I had on this, particularly when we're starting to talk about variables based on game speed and map size and individual preference, you know how when we set up a game, we have certain number of choices on the menu. We don't have a lot of value input choices, the game could say, okay, here are the possible victory conditions. In addition to being able to, say, enable and disable victory conditions, you could say, and this would be something that obviously would be communicated and you'd be able to tell from save files, <laughs> etc., that, hey, control at least, and the default would be, say, 75% of all the land tiles. You could go in and the game set up and change that value. Control or just have 200 um, great people control 120 percent of the land. <laughs> yeah, pile. I don't know if a value input would be a good idea for that, but I could see maybe having alternate versions of it, like some mutually exclusive options. You can check whether you want it to be 62 thirds or three fourths. Yeah, slider would be fine, I think. Yeah, depending. I mean, it, I mean it, you it might would, want but, to set a min and max threshold. Yes, so right. Yes, but like but 10% the general or the general principle of you get to choose the magnitude of the victory conditions, I think, is a very good idea. Yeah, because then if they can't figure out how to end a game and it's over, maybe we can. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I really want to see. More than anything else, when the game is over, it should end soon. Like, especially if it's a multiplayer game, can't we put up a vote for the players to say that? Well, when people do PvP, I mean, it's, it's unofficial, but yeah, that's well. effectively what happens. But yeah, that would be nice. Especially in our more co-op-ish games, if everybody gets to a point where they think, yeah, I'm done with this. I mean, we usually just do it verbally out loud, but it would be nice if you have something mechanical in the game. And even when you're playing solo, like if you're in a position where victory is no longer in doubt, mechanically in the game, there's too much time difference between when that is reality and when the game makes a victory condition possible. Way too much time. So any change to this, I want to see it a lot closer. for episode 310 with Dan Q, Makalua, the Me and Team, Mega Bears fan, and New Earth Relic. Arnt11 started third here with a little poll. Is it time for a custom Civ option? We used to love that with Civ 4, that you could mix and match, kind of. You could with take what, the uh, unrestricted leaders? Custom. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's when you hear a custom Civ option, my mind also defaults to the Civ for unrestricted leaders thing, even though uh -huh. that's only the tip of the potential iceberg of a custom Civ option. Yeah, because you could do all sorts of things with different traits. And, uh, there's also been suggestions in here about a point-based system, probably something like how Stellaris works, where this trait costs this many points, but this other one, and I don't know, they might take let you take negative traits, possibly, to balance. Based on Arn uh, Eleven's introduction, he's not asking for unrestricted leaders. He's asking for the ability to like create a custom civilization straight up. I feel like that's pretty much just a different game at that point. For like the core civilization games, the whole point of the game for me is the historic context and just being able to make up your own civilizations. To me, is just kind of eh. I would be fine with it being in the main line, even though I do prefer the historical aspect as well. It wouldn't take away from the historical aspect. Plus, if you really wanted to tie those two things together, you could say, for example, okay, you've decided that you are going to play as Rome. 
Here is what the default options happen to be in terms of their bonuses. Okay, I want to change this particular value of this. Oop, little drop-down menu. Oh, I want to change what their unique unit is. We're going to have it be a unique musket bin, for example, or something like that. Okay, here you go. What do you want the options to be? Where it would kind of be, within the setup of a game, kind of a, a mod capability without actually creating a mod. Yeah, I mean, I guess I could see is something that could maybe be a really cool kind of middle ground idea is the ability to still customize a given civilization within its unique. So again, using your example of Rome, instead of being able to just pick any unique unit that you want, maybe there's a list of unique units for Rome that are available and you get to choose which one or two you want in that game. So you have the choice between the Legionnaire or the Ballista or something like that and you get to pick one but all of them are themed based on the roman civilization that could be a neat idea similar to you know picking alternate leaders i was just about to say something 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 alternate leaders for every existing civ something something (laughs) that would be a middle ground that i think would probably work better in civ than just being able to completely custom civilization from whole cloth the issue with that though is then you're talking about all that many extra art assets all that many extra things that the designers have to actually create and it's a lot more work you're not going to have any semblance of balance either not that you do now but it's going to be even less well you'd always have the option to go with traditional civ play without having the custom leaders yeah i think you would want to have that as a toggle for sure Uh, just like when i think about this i am considering how many people are going to use it versus the development resources that would go into it when the game still very much does need other things as a much higher priority but in a vacuum the concept of being able to create a custom civilization, I'm not opposed to it. I just don't think it's valuable enough to implement it over quite a few alternatives. In Civilization, you see Montezuma, or you see Gandhi, or you see Alexander the Great, and you have certain expectations about how that guy's going to behave. The symbols to kind of tie it back to the unrestricted leaders element that we first and last saw in Civilization Four. it would be a little different again course in civilization 4 each leader had a couple of traits and those traits granted them a unique bonus but here we've got traits that are applied not just to the leader but also the civilization itself so you could end up with unrestricted leaders as really unrestricted civ ability as well or you could just make it nope the only thing that you can swap is the leader the civilization ability is a civilization ability not saying that that's necessarily a good or a bad thing. Definitely questions even in Civilization 4, and it comes up in the thread. Oh, as soon as you do this unrestricted stuff, then everyone's just going to go for really overpowered stuff. Well, I don't think that in and of itself means do it, but it definitely should be a toggle choice, and it should be very clear in the setup. Hey, look what this person has combined, particularly in a competitive multiplayer situation, but not even then. Just as long as it's upfront and clear. I wouldn't have an issue with it being an option. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not going to stop playing the game if it's there. <laughs> yeah, I was sitting here thinking about because I think I've seen it in other games, and I don't know if this was a something more like Civ, where it's a strategy game, but you were earning traits as you went along through parts of the game. And like in this case, we have our ages with the golden and dark ages, and maybe if you were able to customize the Civ in the sense of what things you could earn, like if you'd been building in an era and you had a golden age, then you started getting a bonus to things for that next age, or maybe it was even sort of like a legacy bonus as you went on in the game. But if you kept building things, you get a bonus to building things. But if you spent a lot in the early game building military, well, then you have a bonus now to building military units or something. Just another customizable thought, though. Recorded for episode 303 with Dan Q, Makalua, the Me and Team, Mega Bears fan. 
Alpha Shard, and Rusane. There are also Civilization board games available. And one, Civilization A New Dawn. I've had an opportunity to play a few sessions, and I think it's pretty darn good. So if Civ 6 and Rise and Fall aren't your thing, this might be uh, worth checking out, whether you've played the earlier Civ games or not. The previous Civilization board game very much felt like it was trying to take the computer game and distill it back into a board game. Even though I like that game a lot, it is very bloated and a little unwieldy in certain places. Whereas the approach this time along seemed to have been to make an elegant board game first and then fit it into the civilization theme. And I think they did a very good job with that. From what I read in your review, as well as the news items beforehand, it kind of felt like in the digital world, the Civilization 2 port for PlayStation, which was, let's take a computer game and just put it onto a console while not taking into account console controllers, was awful. Whereas, hey, let's make a good, for example, console game first, and then think about how I'm applying it to Civilization is how we ended up with Civilization Revolution. I'm feeling like that that's maybe not an exact analogy, but at the same time, it's a similar lesson learned from what was not working well with the previous Civilization board game that Fantasy Flight came out with and this one. Yeah, and again, I want to emphasize that I don't think that older board game is bad. The big issues with that old board game were that it took a very long time to play. I mean, you're talking, depending on the number of players, anywhere from three to maybe even six hours, if you've got like all five players. And there was a lot of downtime in between turns. Like there would be times where you'd have to wait 30, 40 minutes for other players to take their turns before your turn came along. And by the time that happens, you're like, oh, what was I going to do again? I, I forgot. Or the state of the board has just changed so much that your really awesome plan to build that new wonder and conquer this other guy's city just goes completely out the window. And you've got to come up with something on the spot. And then you spend like 10, 15 minutes just figuring out what the heck you're going to do. And it just slows down the game even more. Whereas this new game is basically each player takes one action and then that's the whole turn. It's just action, and then another player's action, and then another player's action, and then depending on how many players there are, then back to you. It's funny that this game, I would say, much more accurately captures the one-more-turn nature of the computer game. Because turns go so quick, and the turnaround time for them is so short, that my friends and I often found that we didn't want to get up and go to the bathroom or something like that because it's like, oh, I just want to do my turn real quick because it's going to be so short. And even when it wasn't my turn, it's going to be my turn in just a minute or two. So nobody wanted to get up and leave the table or stop to take a break because everyone wanted to get through the next turn and then the next turn after that and then the next turn after that. It sounds like it's helping with the, it's taking so long in between turns that I'm starting to lose interest and I'm going to start doing something else, which can be a problem in, oh, I don't know, the computer versions of Civilization (laughs) when we're playing multiplayer. I I totally don't play things on my phone while we're playing multiplayer, nope. So that the pace is fast enough that that's not happening, while at the same time, it's not happening too quickly that you feel that you can't make a decision because the board game isn't going to give you the choices that you have in the computer version. Right. It's going to give you enough that you're going to have to think, but you're not going to have to feel rushed. And and you don't have a turn timer on your one turn. You're going to take one action. But if you need 30 seconds or a minute or two, you can take it. And you'd probably also be encouraged by the people you're playing with at some point to 
hurry the heck up and <laughs> not take 20, 30 minutes to play your one turn, because otherwise they're just not going to play with you anymore. And something tells me this does not play as a single-player experience. So, <laughs> uh, No, there are no single-player rules. I mean, you could always set up a game and play against yourself. You can do that with any board game. But yeah, you do need at least one other player to play this game. And the two-player game is super quick, hammered out in like an hour, an hour and a half. A little bit longer if it's your first game and you got to explain rules. But explaining the rules is also really easy in this game because the way that it works is the actions come from a set of cards. And you basically just read the card and do what the card says. Set up the board and just start playing and explain as you go. If you get to a point where someone realizes, oh, I totally screwed up, just restart the game. But in every case so far that I've played, we've done that. And everyone's been like, no, no, we'll just keep going. I think I got it now. We'll just keep going. I want to see how this goes. On top of that, in terms of making decisions, the way that the cards work is uh, as they progress through different difficulty levels, there's difficulty levels one through five, and they correspond to the different terrain on the map. And each time you play a card, it goes back to position one and all the other cards shift up in the queue. Generally speaking, the higher up in the queue the card is, the more powerful it becomes or the more options it gives you, usually related to what terrain you can perform the actions on. So to some extent, it's really easy to learn the game because you can just pick whatever the card in the fifth or fourth slot is. And just the game kind of basically gives you a hint as to what you maybe should be trying to do this turn, because that's going to be the card that's going to be the most powerful. But once you learn the game, you realize that you don't always have to do that. Sometimes it could be advantageous to play the card that's in the first or second slot, what you're doing and on what terrain you're going to be doing it on. It's very easy to teach to new players, and new players should grasp it very quickly. Pretty dang solid game, I think. And most of my complaints with it are just naggy little nitpicky kind of things. You know, the biggest thing is that, again, because it was designed to be an elegant board game first, it's not as representative of the computer game. So if you want to play the computer game in board game form, this is not the game for you. You should go get the older board game. But if you want to play a much more elegant, much more streamlined board game that has a much better pace and plays in a much more reasonable time frame, then A New Dawn is fantastic. Given that our audience on this show is those who are playing the computer version of Civilization, as I was going through your review, I was trying to highlight those few things that just hearing it as a phrase would, I hope, invite further questions from people listening because it would be so different from the computer experience and then trying to understand, first off, why that's being done and second of all, how that works in practice. You note that there is no army or unit movement at all, with the exception of some traders and barbarians. But in terms of civilizations proper, you describe combat as a much more abstract concept of attacking one spot that you control to another space that an enemy controls. Within a range determined by your civilization's military development, combat is resolved by simply rolling competing die checks. So is this random number generator, you might get luck screwed moment then? That can happen, and that's going to be in almost any board game. There's dice or cards involved. There's going to be luck of the die roll and luck of the draw. And, you know, there need to be mechanics in place where the outcomes are not just automatic and predetermined. But I found that the die rolling mechanic so far has not been much of a detractor. We've only had like one or two situations where someone got really, really unlucky and their entire turn basically went to waste. Because there's a lot that you do to mitigate that. So a big part of that is when you take your military action, if your card is in that fifth slot, you've got an automatic plus five to your 
roll on a six-sided die. So unless you're attacking someone who also has a lot of modifiers, you know, because of terrain bonuses or wonders or something like that, you're almost certainly going to win unless they roll a six and you roll a one, right? And so if you're playing your military card at like slot one or two and you're trying to attack somebody's city that's fortified on a mountain, that's not going to work, right? I mean, you'd have to get incredibly lucky to make that work. But in, in most cases, the die rolls, I think, work pretty well. But yes, you don't ever move units across. It's basically just there's a tile that you control and there's a tile that the enemy controls and they're like a certain number of spaces apart. I attack that tile and then you just roll the die and that's it. And part of that also, when you talk about the focus bar consisting of five cards, you've got the economy, research, industry, culture, and military. And the starting position of each focus card is determined by your specific civilization. So it goes up to five because you talk about position five and position one. But depending upon the civilization that you've chosen, you will start at a particular position, say at three, four, five, and then go down to one, which led to a, a reference. Well, they didn't talk a lot about it in the review about how some civilizations feel stronger based on the gameplay, which also ties into the fact that New Dawn has thrown out the traditional victory conditions and just gives you a series of three objective cards, and each card has two different objectives, and you win by completing one objective from each of the cards. Is it that the military tends to be the most common way that you have found that people have won, and if so, or whatever the victory condition is, is that perhaps more the nature of the players, or does that have to do more with the design and the execution of the mechanics of this game? Actually, quite the opposite. Military action has been, I would say, de-emphasized in this game, especially compared to the computer game and in the previous board game. My girlfriend was just telling me about how one of the things that she, she doesn't play the Civilization computer game, but she did used to play Age of Empires, Age of Empires 2 back in the day. So she likes just going out and killing all of her enemies and bathing in their blood. And the older Civ board game, it makes it easier to do that because defeating any one other player's capital is a victory condition in that older game. If you do that, you win the game. Whereas in this game, you've got the objective cards. On a standard game, you draw three of them. One card that's like either capture another player's capital or capture two city-states. Another card where one of the conditions is to build two or more military-themed world wonders. So, A, you have to draw those cards into the game to begin with, right? If those cards don't get drawn, then military is not a direct path to victory at all in that particular game. I mean, you can still use your military to achieve other victory conditions, like capture other players' cities that have resources or control two natural wonders. You know, so you can use your military to capture cities that are next to wonders from other players and, and win that way. So you still have your choice of which you want to do. Again, tying into something that we in the PC realm of Civilization play know a lot, which is difficulty level that really yields its head when you're playing single player or if it's multiplayer and it's cooperative against the artificial intelligence. This is a multiplayer game only. If you're playing multiplayer Civ on the computer, we don't really talk about difficulty level, right? Well, you're going to play on Prince because those difficulty levels are giving the quote-unquote dirt bonuses to the AI or they're taking it away from them depending upon the victory condition, whether you're going up on the difficulty level or down on the difficulty level. Difficulty level. You refer to difficulty level in relation to the 
focus bar on the five cards, where each slot on the focus bar corresponds to a terrain type which escalate in difficulty level. Would you also perhaps add to that that in terms of the cards and the objectives that you have to get, that if you played an epic game, that that would be the equivalent of increasing the difficulty level, or I suppose as a in-house rule modification, which of course totally doesn't happen in multiplayer civilization at all, <clears throat> that you could reduce the number of cards as well of the objectives to have a faster game and therefore lower the difficulty level? Well, I don't know if that would really correlate to difficulty levels. That would correlate more to game speed. So uh, it's almost like each of the victory cards in the game is one of the game speeds. So if you play with just one or two victory cards in play, I guess that would be a quick or online speed game of the computer game. If you played with all five, that would be more comparable to a marathon game, except still playable in evening rather than weeks. Okay, I can hear the game speed part, but seeing as how a player wins by completing one objective from each of the cards, if you reduce the number of cards, you therefore reduce the number of objectives. Would that not then have an impact, potentially, anyway, how difficult it would be to win the game or not? Yeah, and I think if you definitely decrease the card count below three, the game would become very easy because you'd probably be winning the game before you got to a point where any of the players had expanded to a point where they were interacting with each other in any meaningful ways. So the game would probably just come down to if you're playing a three-player game, each of the three players just turtling in a corner, right, until they get the two victory conditions, and then it's game over, and they never have to fight or trade with each other because they just never expand to a point where they're close enough to do those things. And in that sense, yeah, the game would be a lot easier, but the winning would probably also feel a lot more arbitrary, and it probably wouldn't be a very comfortable experience for the players because, like I said, you'd just be off in your corner doing your own thing, and then someone else just wins the game. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Whereas if you played with more of the cards, then that would probably create a lot more conflict because the board doesn't get any bigger, but the game's going on for longer. There's going to be more time to expand and to grow. So there's probably going to be more natural conflict because of that, because you're going to have more time to build more cities and claim more territory. So there's going to be more competition probably over who controls the city states and who controls the natural wonders and stuff like that. So I I can see it influencing difficulty in that sense, but there's nothing that's going to like, say, make the barbarians roll higher or anything like that. The difficulty is all going to just be in how the players interact with one another and just how long the game takes to complete. So it's sounding like Civilization, A New Dawn, This new board game for Fantasy Flight Games, which you've rated an A-, has something for everyone who would be interested in playing a board game, whether they were a Civilization player or not, while at the same time having enough of a Civilization feel that, so long as a Civilization player isn't thinking this is the board game version of the computer game, that they can get enjoyment from it too. Yes. I do say in the review that I think this board game could act as almost sort of a gateway drug, which might get players who previously didn't care for Civilization to think, oh, maybe this game actually is interesting. Maybe now I do want to try the PC game. I've played the game with multiple people who have never played the PC game. They all very much enjoyed it and would like to play again. It's good in that sense. And if you do play the computer game, it's also good. I doubt you would dislike this game, but you just have to go in understanding that it's not going to play the way that the computer game does. And if you want that more computer game-like experience, then again, that previous Fantasy Flight board game, but that older game is going to take a lot longer to play and is going to be a lot more complicated and difficult to learn, whereas this one's going to be much simpler. And not only that, but it's also going to cost less because not everybody has to own a copy of the board game in order to play. That is also correct. You only need a single, uh, I think it's 50 bucks, but I'm sure you could probably get good deals. 
So yeah, you only need one person to pay instead of all your friends, which is always one of the benefits of board games is only one person needs to buy the game for everyone to be able to play and enjoy it. Well, if they were good friends, they would all chip in on the, in the cost. So then it just costs one person five or six dollars, right? Well, yeah, true. If you've got four friends, then yeah, everybody pitches in and yeah, you can get yourself a communal copy of the game and then just fight over who gets custody on what weekend. Yeah, Dan forgot about that part. Settled with a cage match. Support the ongoing Polycast Patreon campaign. Collective achievements. Personal incentives. Month-to-month commitment. For more information, visit thepolycast.net slash Patreon. Call in today. In North America, 301-637-7659. In Europe, 44-121-288-7659. The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. Log on to the series' official website at thepolycast.net. Record date assorted. 2018. Civilization 4, 5, and Beyond Earth Sound Clips. Copyright Take 2 Interactive. Door Monster Clip. Copyright Door Monster. Copyright Civilized Communication at civcom.net.